you know, the rules and regulations are very different, but if you're going through a conversion, um, there's a risk associated with like, well, well, if we are valuing it this way, but then it doesn't get approved as we go through the process, um, you know, you're, you're wind up really sitting on a, a bad asset. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Oof, I think probably butter pecan, which is yes. probably random for, uh, for most people. It's probably a little bit more uh, exciting than that, but... It is random. We haven't had a ton of guests that say like a butter or like a savory. My mom flavor. always said I was special, so. <laughs> she just met your ice cream choices, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but you're joining us from Charleston, South Carolina, a place I went to earlier this summer. And man, I forgot how awesome of a place that is. If I make it back down that way, where is the best place I can go get ice cream if I'm that way? Uh, so there's... Um... There's a franchise from Jenny's that's actually like I think Charlestonians would kill me for saying this because it's based out of Ohio. Uh, yeah. We literally have a, a website called GoBackToOhio.com because uh, there's so many transplants here. But uh, that's probably my favorite. Uh, there's always a line that's super long when you're trying to get there. You know, it's, we get we've got like 95 degree weather, 110 heat index right now so there's always a super long line this time of year to try to get in there um but if you can get in there it's a good spot yeah you own the website go back to ohio.com i don't i don't own it i don't want to i don't want to be affiliated with that but no but if you google that there there legit is a website for that (laughs) gotcha i don't know i remember when i was growing up i used to see like ohio license plates everywhere and i was like man if everybody from ohio drove in ohio there must be (laughs) everywhere because they're all all out in the roads everywhere else totally you would almost think that there's like some kind of tax break or something because you see them everywhere you know at least in the southeast for for whatever that's worth (laughs) yeah yeah well tell our listeners what's the scoop what do you do today so I, uh, I actually, I own a property management company that manages uh, short-term rentals specifically, as well as a couple of um, small boutique hotels. So uh, I've got two partners on um, the investing side and we just started buying small, we, we, we call them, we affectionately refer to them as uh, grandma's house. That's kind of our buy box. So the, the more grandma it looks, the better it is for us. And so um, these old kind of um, historic boutique boutique uh, B&B type places. Um, that's really like what's on our radar now. So we've got, we bought the first two last year in Charleston. Uh, we've made offers on a half a dozen um, as well this year. So the, the uh, interest rate environment's a little bit different this year than it was last year. So, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays itself out. I think uh, Hendersonville, North Carolina, which is outside of Asheville, uh, about 20 minutes. Um, is probably going to be the next one. So we're we're uh, getting closer, I think, on on some numbers for one up there. Um, but that's kind of my my uh, my fun passion project, side project, if you will. Um, my my uh, my management company does about five million dollars in bookings um, annually. So we uh, we actually just made the uh, Inc. Five Thousand of uh, America's 
uh, 5,000 fastest growing private companies. So we came in at 741 this year. That's something that's uh, that's kind of neat, uh, but it's really in the hockey um, stick growth phase of that. So it's been a lot of fun. Spent 20 years in corporate America doing stuff that I didn't like doing. So um, it's fun to kind of be building the empire now. Yeah, well, I got a lot of questions on the boutique houses. Specifically, speaking of domains, you should go, you should get the domain webuygrandmashouse.com because nice. I think uh, that's interesting. <laughs> but uh, before we get there, what did you do in the corporate world and how, how did you get in real estate? I tripped into sales for defense contractors supporting the defense industrial base for almost um, 20 years, like six months shy of 20 years, actually. Um, primarily supporting the Navy and Coast Guard. Um, you know, you, you get to the army bases, they're in much more remote places, um, in the country. So at least, you know, Navy and Coast Guard, you're mostly dealing with the coast. Uh, so for, for whatever that's worth in terms of, uh, military bases. But, uh, I actually started renting a room, um, out of my house. I, I say a room, it was a one bedroom condo back in 2012. So I spent a dozen of those 20 years uh, working for Fortune 500 companies, and uh, I was part of a massive corporate-wide layoff of 700 people back in 2012. So it's it's interesting. I actually I, I think when I look at kind of the the forks in the road, if you will, in my life, uh, a lot of the the coolest things have come from what would normally be the the worst situations. Um, and so, you know, that certainly was a bad situation at the time. Um, I actually wound up like crashing on friends' houses just to rent out this condo on VRBO. And that was my first exposure to short-term rentals. So, um, everything really all kind of started from that. Um, I, I really kind of left it alone, tried a couple of other entrepreneurial ventures between, um, like 2012, 2013 and, uh, February of 2016. So um, I don't know why this date sticks in my head, but February 24th of 2016, um, I had moved on from that one bedroom condo, took another job in corporate America, and uh, was still kind of, you know, just kicking along, just trying to make things work in corporate America and trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And uh, at that point I had a three bedroom house and I listed one bedroom on Airbnb in February of 2016 and uh, I've just been kind of growing from there. So about seven years into that journey. 2012 was, I don't think I even stayed in Airbnb up until that point. So that was way, way early in the journey. So you are an OG in this yeah. space then. This, it's, it's weird when you look at, so look, my, my kind of my running joke is my old college buddies would literally laugh at me, right? It's just like, dude, that's crazy. So they like, you have a guest and they just like, come downstairs when you're drinking your morning coffee in your underwear and you got your hand in your pants. And I'm like, man, I don't know how you drink your coffee, but I think we're, <laughs> I think we're different. So, but yeah, it was, it was early enough to be laughed at by my buddies. I, I will say that it's interesting to kind of see things come full circle. And now, you know, this, this many years later now it's like, Oh, how did you do that again? Yeah. So, yeah. um, you stuck with it long enough and you know, everybody knows what Airbnb is now. It, kind of the irony is now that we're buying actual B&Bs, I have to explain like, no, this actually came from a, 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 a term here, right? Like there's an actual bed and breakfast um, and, and correct people and say, no, not Airbnbs. So it's funny that things have come full circle. Yeah. Now in 2012, you said you got caught up in a corporate layoff and then tried a couple things and then went back to corporate America. When did you, are you still with corporate America today or no. did you fully leave? 
Nope, nope. So December, that's another date that sticks with me. December 19th of 2021 is when I officially walked away. So uh, it's, it's interesting, again, you know, COVID, right? So we, I made it through a global pandemic with this venture, but um, that really was kind of a gut check. Uh, I always told myself, I, I stayed in corporate America doing both jobs, burn, letting the, burn, the candle burn at both ends long enough that people in both industries and in hospitality and in the defense industry were like, why are you doing this to yourself? Like just, you know, just commit to one or the other. And then COVID happened. And I'm like, ha, that's why. Um, so, you know, it, it was really at that point, things got crushed. Obviously, you know, we had a solid quarter of just, you know, so, so, uh, April of 2020 should have been the first, uh, month that my, um, that my management company did a hundred thousand dollars in bookings. Uh, we did, uh, let's $767 on a single booking. Uh, so it literally is down almost a hundred percent, for that month. So, uh, just absolutely crushed. Um, and, and for comparison's sake, we did almost 600,000 last month alone. So, uh, you know, things have really kind of exploded here, but it was at that point, I kind of, you know, again, people are like, oh, this is crazy. You know, I should get out of this. In my opinion, it really didn't last long enough to create real opportunity, um, like real pain. Um, it definitely hurt trying to finance deals uh, for, for a couple years after that um, from an investor perspective. It obviously crushed the management, you know, for, for the better part of 2020. Um, we basically had to switch to more what I, what I call midterm rentals. Uh, but it was really kind of, you know, people from like New York, Chicago, uh, California, you know, places that were not opening back up after COVID uh, or were just taking much, much longer. And so people literally, you know, now again, this is super common, but um, but people were starting to work from home. Right. And it's like, well, I want to be able to actually go out to dinner and enjoy my life. Um, and so we had a lot of people that would come here anywhere from two weeks all the way up to like four or five months uh, back in 2020. And we kind of survived on those shorter term leases. Um, and then 21 and 22. Turns out when you lock people up for a year, they really want to get out and uh, enjoy themselves. So uh, the rest is kind of history from there. 21 and 22 got kind of crazy. And I finally quit corporate America. So how many were you uh, property managing around January of 2021? Let's call it. And what does your portfolio look like today from a management standpoint? So I had 21 listings in December of 21 when I quit corporate America. Uh, we've got 65 now. Um, so that's that's kind of the growth. I, I like to say that about a third of those, um, I either own either all of the listing or a piece of it. Um, so that's either either the, the boutique B&Bs. Um, I've also got um, short-term rentals on my own as well too. So. Um, some people, it, it, that perspective has kind of changed as well over the last five years. Uh, I think when I first started leaning into the management a little bit more, it's like, well, you know, he manages his own stuff. How do I know that he's, uh, he's, Prioritizing he's me. steering things toward my property? Um, but I'm, I'm a super kind of technology forward, automation obsessed guy. Um, however, you want to be able to test out technology before you implement it. And so uh, that's kind of part of my sales pitch is I never roll anything out that I haven't tested on my own properties. Um, and so if something breaks, we just don't do it. Um, and things have definitely broken before. I've tried a couple of things where we've just been a little bit too early on the technology. Um, but if it works, then we roll it across the whole portfolio and then everybody gets that benefit. So I kind of use myself as the guinea pig. 
So I think I saw on your website, you have Charleston, Pigeon Forge, and Gatlinburg. Are, are those the three markets you serve? Yeah, those are, we're also now on Isle of Palms, which is one of the beaches um, in outside of Charleston. Uh, but yeah, those are the main, the main markets. So why did you choose those markets? And uh, then I'll, I got a couple questions from there. Sure. Yeah, it's I, so nobody would really think of a defense contractor working out of Charleston, South Carolina. So in some ways, you know, now that I look back, I'm like, man, I should have embraced the fact that this is a hospitality town a long time ago. Um, just, you know, that's people like to travel here. Uh, I, I had so, you know, again, a dozen years, Fortune 500 companies, right? And and during that whole time, of course, they're all based out of Washington, D.C. That's where the money comes from. And so it's like, oh, you got to come up here. You got to move up here if you ever want to do anything in your career. And I'm like, okay, have you ever vacationed in my city? Well, yeah. Well, I've never vacationed in yours. Like, so that's the difference. I'm not going to move up there. I'm sorry. And so it's, it's almost like I finally, after telling that joke for so many years, I finally just embraced the fact that like, hey, this is what we're known for. Um, and that's actually one one thing that in hindsight, I got really lucky with in terms of riding that real estate explosion. Uh, and things really exploded after COVID in Charleston as well, too. So once people were able to visit other cities, they, you know, they effectively used coming out of COVID to test, you know, in some cases, three to half a dozen different cities and pick where they liked um, and then moved here. Um, so the real estate's really exploded here. I've kind of been a beneficiary of that. Um, in hindsight. So it's really more just embracing where I am. Uh, I, I do love this city. I love kind of being in the Southeast and being on the coast. Uh, there's some really cool things about this city. The food is great for as small as the city is. Um, so, you know, in, in hindsight, I think I probably just finally embraced what I, what I had liked all along. Um, and uh, in, in terms of picking like the other cities that we operate in, you know, if I'm here, I might as well operate in and around here. Um, you know, now that we're expanding this B&B brand, the plan is to expand the management into those cities. Uh, so it's kind of an easy way for the management company to expand to other places, managing that asset and then using that as a jumping off point. Um, Pigeon Forge, I'm actually a part of a, a, a mastermind group called GoBundance. Um, and so I actually have um, a, a realtor partner on the um, Smoky stuff. So um, he handles kind of the front end sales portion and then you know if it's a short-term rental he'll he'll lean into us and say hey you know talk to these folks and see if it makes sense um, to manage the asset so um that really was kind of like a, a deal pipeline type of thing that um that made us look at that uh, smokies are super popular there's almost twenty thousand short-term rentals there it's a, a very different market than the charleston market it's much more highly regulated and controlled here so um you know you kind of get the best of both worlds yeah, I, I grew up like 90 minutes away from Gatlinburg. I, I love that town. We used to go there when it was a small little sleepy vacation spot, and now it's exploded into yep. what it is today. But I, I think uh, one of the questions I have is really around scale. So operating a short-term uh, rental is a very hands-on business. Um, obviously, there's a lot of automation and the tech stack that you can implement to help with that. Um, we've had people on the show before talk through that, but how were you able to scale managing so many short-term rentals across wide geographic areas? Yeah, it's, it's really tough. Uh, I think that I'm that guy that, um, 
when I first started, so the, the only reason I, I got into it when I moved into this three bedroom house, I had this realtor, this, um, she was a realtor and a property manager. She's like, I got somebody that wants to buy your house. Like, you know, let me, I, they want it to make it to be a short term rental and you know, this money's great. Why are you even living here? And I'm like, I just moved in here. You know, like I, I had, to, had no intention of doing that. Um, and she was managing the property next door and she's like, oh, I'll do a pro forma for you if you, if you want to just, you know, move out and I can manage it for you. And I'm like, why do you want to send me a pro forma? Aren't you managing next door? Just send me the actuals. And so she sent me the revenue report for that year. And I was like, I got to get out of this house. So, <laughs> yeah, that was like, uh, that between that and then, uh, I got a copy of her management agreement and I'm like man, I'm not paying somebody this much, you know, and that was the impetus for managing my own property. And so, uh, ironically, again, like my very first management client was early 2019. So he signed December of 18, January, 2019. Um, and the only reason he and I started talking, um, was because there was an attorney that lived across the street. Again, that's still relatively early for Airbnb. Right. And, uh, just angry at, at at people coming and going, right? Like people still hadn't kind of adjusted to how that changes a neighborhood. Um, and so she would just complain to him a, a lot and he would contact me like, hey, you know, what is she saying to you? Is there, you know, I just want to make sure there's not going to be any litigation or complaints with the city. Like we're just trying to do the right thing here. Uh, and so that started a conversation between him and me. He owned the two properties there and then another one, um, one street north. Um, and finally, after a couple of years, I'm like, Hey man, let's just compare numbers. Uh, and so we would compare numbers at the end of every year. And I, I wasn't quitting my job, right? I was still, still doing the corporate America thing. So, um, at the end of the second year, he had gone through two different property managers and, and he asked me that he like, are you going to quit your job? I'm like, nah, man, this is easy. Like I'm, I'm going to, I'm happy to do it for you and create the same numbers, um, you know, based on what I've done so far. But I just, you know, I'm not to that point where I want to walk away from corporate America. And so he signed up to be my first traditional management client. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, even some of the old Airbnb guys will say that they did a lot of things early on that didn't scale. And I think that's kind of how it is, right? Like, you know, you do a lot of things looking back that you just got to kind of tough through and figure things out. Um, and being an entrepreneur really changes your definition of failure. Um, it's just, it's the complete opposite of what we learn in, in the school system. You know, it's, just, it's, it's a piece of the process. And frankly, if you're not failing, you're probably not trying hard enough. Um, you know, I don't even look for a, a perfect solution out of the gate anymore. It's more like trying to get to a, you know, 70% and then we refine until we can get to 90 or 95. And I never just, I never expect perfection anymore. So um, that guy was willing to be the first one through the door, uh, which is usually the hardest thing. And so after that, um, this kind of took me a while to get um, the momentum to start getting a bunch of referrals. Um, and I, I probably had, you know, in the low teens going into um, COVID, uh, but I was really, really deliberate. I wanted to develop the right systems and tech stack and all of those things. Um, yeah, in hindsight, it's a super sticky business. Um, the, the average retention rate in property management for short-term rentals is 90%, such a pain to, to transition to somebody else, uh, or at least that's that's the narrative. Uh, and so, you know, in hindsight, I, I probably would have been better served to kind of do the market grab, right? Once people were 
Uh, once the rules were defined in specific cities, then there was a huge market grab from a management perspective. Um, and then at some point, Vacasa started buying up what they could in the different markets they wanted to be in, right? So, um, you know, the people that had that land grabbed, you kind of had the first mover advantage, if you will. Um, so it's been a mostly referral-based business. Actually, um, we just launched our first actual outbound sales outreach on the management company in the last 90 days. Um, we've just picked up massively with referrals and inbound leads just coming through Google. Um, so it's been a, a slow and steady process that really has kind of uh, just exploded in the last year. Nice, nice. Well, we've had a bunch of people on the show to talk about Airbnb, short-term rentals, how you separate yourself, different tech stacks you can use and things like that. So if anybody's interested in that conversation, I would encourage them to go listen to our previous episodes. But one of the reasons why I was excited to have you on is this idea of boutique hotels and B&Bs. So for anybody under the age of 30, can you please describe what a B&B is first and then talk to us about like why you're getting into this space? Yeah, it's it's pretty simple. And so if somebody goes to my website or LinkedIn or whatever, they'll, they'll see the phrase information arbitrager um, under you know how I kind of describe myself. And the main reason for that is, you know, I mentioned people laughing at me, right? My old, my old college buddies laughing at me when I started in the short-term rental space. Well, no one's laughing anymore, right? Which, which means it's more commonplace, the returns aren't as good. Um, you're not the first guy through the door anymore. So, um, you know, those returns get compressed over time. We, we had uh, cheap money policies with the Federal Reserve for a long time. Um, and it's, it's just a different environment now. But the, the opportunity that I see in the, the boutique actual bed and breakfast um, asset class is far more uh, similar to what I saw in Airbnb 10 or 12 years ago. Um, there just there aren't a lot of people doing it. And what we've, what we've really tried to do is take what we learned in short-term rentals in terms of that kind of technology forward, um, automation obsessed, um, and, and we, we've added the phrase design forward in the boutique hotel brand, uh, but really leaning into that old school bed and breakfast model. So typically um, you'll, you'll have like a husband and wife, it's their, their, their last career, if you will, before they retire. Um, so they, you know, they quit whatever jobs they had. They go buy an old bed and breakfast somewhere. Um, it's a, an older home, especially when you're looking at the East Coast, right? It's an, an older home that um, could be could have been renovated anywhere from like 10 to 50 years ago. Uh, so it's a bit outdated um, and, and just a little bit kind of run down. But it has that husband and wife that are in there making breakfast every morning, right? So. Um, it's, it's usually their last gig before they retire. Um, and so we, we've kind of combined three partners. Uh, obviously I have the management company. One of the partners is a general contractor who actually specializes in historic home renovation. Um, and so the things that scared me from a renovation perspective 10 years ago, just, you know, it doesn't even enter my mind anymore. Uh, I have enough experience probably to be able to see, um, you know, identify some of the issues, but I want nothing to do with fixing them in a 200 year old house. So it's nice to have a guy like him on the team. Uh, and then our third, our third uh, partner has a marketing company. So in terms of actually trying to create a brand and putting together a customer avatar um, for the people, you, you say for the people under 30. So, so our uh, kind of target demographic for the, for our boutique brand is 
uh, what we like to say, the Trader Joe's demographic. So you look at the 26, 27 year old up to like maybe 43, 45, um, typically probably educated, um, you know, in that 80 to $150,000 income demographic, um, you know, make enough to not consider themselves wealthy by any means, but uh, they do appreciate experience. Um, and they want to uh, also have that value of staying in a, a historic home, but still want that modern amenity. They want to uh, take a shower in a tub that, uh, you know, is, is green from the 1960s um, that, quite frankly, can't really get clean anymore because it's so old. Um, you know, they want those modern amenities with a historic feel. So that's really kind of the target demographic that we're going for with the boutique hotel stuff. I uh, I remember the first B and B I stayed in. It was out in the middle of nowhere, California. My mom took me to San Francisco, and then we kind of drove out like an hour and a half to go see some of the sequoias and all that. And we stopped at a gold mining town and went there. And uh, I remember each each room having like their own little theme and like board games and all those sorts of things. And then, as you mentioned, the the older couple that kind of owned the B and B cooked us dinner. They cooked us breakfast the next day and all that sort of thing. Um, I guess with that being said, like, how do you stand out in that crowd of for a and b Like, are you theming these ho hotels? Do you have any special kind of things that make it stand out? Yeah, so, our, I mean, I, I'm i a, a nerd for these old, ha old houses. Um, and so the first one actually was converted back in 1992, which basically sat dormant after a major hurricane. Uh, in fact, the biggest hurricane ever to hit Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, so this was like a way to rejuvenate it, um, but it dates all the way back to 1852. Uh, the second one we bought dates all the way back to 1798. Uh, the third one that we just offered on in Hendersonville dates back to 1881. So that's actually like our new property, if you will. Um, and so, you know, when, when you're looking at these older homes, there's, there's just there's a lot of things that come with that. Um, you know, potential issues. You, you you go to fix something and you rip a wall open, right? And then it's like, oh, I have five other problems I didn't know that I had. Um, and so the, the, the big difference with us is that we fixed all of those, right? And so um, what typically when we close on that property, my management company will work very closely with that husband and wife owner um, and it means something to them, right? And it, it and we'd like to think that it means as much to us as it does to them, right? That, you know, they've taken care of these guests. There's a lot of people that come and stay with them every summer or every winter, you know, every year, whatever time of year it may be. Um, so they've built up that reputation with them. You know, we want to make sure that um, they know they're taken care of. Um, and then we'll run it usually for anywhere from like three to seven months and you know run out the existing reservations we don't just buy it and then shut it down um, and that really gives my management company an opportunity to um, really fine-tune the renovation uh, schedule if you will so you know obviously we when we underwrite something we have to uh, say what we're going to do from a renovation perspective but by operating it through all of the existing reservations we can also kind of understand any little tweaks that we might not have seen uh, when we were underwriting the deal. Um, and so, at, you know, we'll, we'll do those tweaks in the renovation schedule and then we completely shut it down and, you know, get rid of, <coughs> excuse me, get rid of some of those um, issues that you typically will have in older homes. So to me, that's the, the number one differentiator. Uh, we're certainly building a brand around, um, the, the name of the brand is called True V Collection. True V is French for a lucky find. 
Um, and so, you know, we think it's pretty unique to have um, the character of some of these really old historic homes, um, but be completely modern as far as amenities and, you know, just, just beautiful. In, in fact, uh, it's pretty cool. I, I actually, uh, we, one of our cleaning contractors, uh, she cleaned our first, when she was get, just getting into the industry, she cleaned our very first uh, bed and breakfast like eight years ago. Um, and so they actually had a bed and breakfast permit, but weren't even serving breakfast just because unless you're there cooking it every day, like you mentioned, typically people don't do that. Um, and so she was a little bit nervous when we hired her and we asked her to clean this property because she knew what it was before. Uh, and when she walked in the front door, she's like, I didn't, I didn't, I had no idea what I was even looking at. Like, it's just so beautiful. Um, and that's really what we're kind of going for. Um, you know, anybody that walks in these places, it's just, they're just blown away by what we've done with this renovation. Um, and so that's really the biggest difference I think is, um, trying to really just make these things beautiful and stand out, uh, so that you can still kind of have the conveniences of a, a normal modern hotel chain, uh, but you get that historic feel. Um, so a couple of quick questions that I'm going to ask that, uh, I know it's going to be dependent on the property, but what are your average occupancy levels right now? <clears throat> yeah, actually it's, it's interesting that, that you asked that and it totally, and I'm happy to ask, to answer anything as far as underwriting and all that, that these deals are far more complex than a normal short-term rental, obviously. But, um, the, the interesting thing that we've realized, I think so far with, um, the deals that we've offered on are that the occupancy rates typically are not the issue. Um, when these these couples are running them, they're actually running them usually close to ninety percent, uh, wow. which is yeah, which is super high. You know, if you if you know anything about hospitality, that's just super high. Um, but they can only squeeze so much out of it with rates, right? And so by doing the renovations that we're able to do, uh, we can actually uh, double the rate on average, and um, the occupancy still stays between 75 and 85%, depending on the month of the year. Um, so you know, that's really kind of the, the big value add for us, being able to double the rate. The occupancy is still high. The average occupancy, I think, um, last quarter across hospitality was like 53% or something like that. Um, and that takes in you know seasonality across the country and everything. Um, so that's still exceptionally high, but it's certainly not as high as when we would buy them. And then what's your average nightly rate then? Yeah, so the, the 12 months on the first one um, that we bought was 165, 12 months prior. Um, our average now is about 315. Um, and the second one uh, was in the low 250s, 254. Um, and then our, our uh, we underwrote that close to 500 a night. So wow. um, yeah, going anywhere from like 75 to 100% on the uh, of increase on the ADR on the average daily rate. So, I mean, obviously I'm way over my ski tips here with asking stupid questions that you probably no, deal no, with no. every day, but like, how do you even judge elasticity on the pricing? Meaning you're, you're looking at something and it's charging 150 bucks a month and you're like, oh yeah, we could easily bump that to 315. Like, how do you judge demand and elasticity around these properties? Yeah, I think that's one of the cool things about kind of using some of the technology, right? Dynamic pricing it took a little while to gain traction in short-term rentals, but it's commonplace now, right? And it's the same type of thing, you know, as far as revenue management with hospitality. Um, and so, you know, we're using some of these pricing platforms when we go to underwrite something, especially if it's in like the North Carolina one in a new market, uh, because we're, we're not just getting the existing P&L, 
uh, you know, profit and loss statements for the last three years when we're underwriting it, but we also have to do a, a post-renovation pro forma uh, when we're doing those. So, <coughs> excuse me, got a, a tickle. Um, but yeah, so it's really a combination of using those dynamic pricing platforms and then just also looking at the competition around. There's so much data that's screen scraped um, in, in sources that are uh, putting together and aggregating this data uh, to be able to kind of analyze for these deals. So that's all part of it as well, too. Um, and, that, and that's really what we're using as the basis of these performers when we're building them for the post-renovation side. So you said like tools to screen scrape. I, what does that mean? Uh, yeah, so so when you have uh, so OTAs online travel agency and and I apologize too. It's it, it's interesting to have the conversation because it's like oh, you got to break it down further. Uh, so online travel agencies OTAs so um, things like OB, uh, Airbnb, um, VRBO, Booking dot com those are OTAs right and you know all of those are web based and so you have um, websites that just straight up will go scrape the data that's um, on each of those sites and then just aggregate it into um, into uh, an ability to be able to analyze um, analyze it across that market um, and I mean like super specific um, you, you get you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt it depends on uh, depends on the uh, how long the asset has been um, listed you know, using those platforms. Um, so how long, and then also how many there are in the neighborhood, obviously if there's, you know, five in a, in an area as opposed to 5,000, then, you know, you have to kind of question the validity of the data a little bit. Um, so you have to take it with a grain of salt, depending on the context. Uh, but it's actually gotten much better as you would expect technology to, um, to be as you kind of move along here and things expand. So, Gotcha. Gotcha. And then in terms of like financing these, uh, you kind of sit in the middle of not being a hotel, but also a business and real estate. So can you get SBA loans? Are there Fannie and Freddie? Do you have to get a commercial loan? Like what does all that look like? Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. That's the interesting piece with these. So the, the cool thing is that most of these buildings are so small that they're ignored by your typical private equity groups. Um, and so, you know, there's a very specific buyer. Um, you know, we would almost be considered more institutional. Um, typically it is just the husband and wife. So when you're doing that and just with the size of the deals, give you an idea of the size of the deals. Uh, first one was uh, 3.771 million. We put about 750,000 into it. <clears throat> Second one was three and a half. We put, we're putting about 1.1 million into it. And the third one, uh, 2.2 putting in about 1.3. Um, so, you know, they're not massive loans, but they're certainly not, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars either. Um, and so because of the uniqueness of the asset class, you also have to really, um, it's, a, it's a specific lender that's going to do that too. So, uh, especially coming out of COVID and it's typically more your community banks um, or at least like your local state banks. 
Um, you know, you're, you're not going to go into Wells Fargo or Chase and get a, a loan to buy these assets. Um, you definitely can do SBA lending, lo- loans, um, uh, lending, I guess, and, uh, and also up to 90% is typically what they'll do to like, just like buying a normal business through the SBA. Those terms are not great right now just because interest rates are not great. Uh, but if you look at that, you know, more, more as like a, a bridge loan, you know, and, and you think that the interest rates are going to kind of level off here, which it seems like they are finally, um, you, you can look at that as more of like a three-year option and then hopefully refinance it to something a little bit cheaper. Um, but yeah, it's typically between, I would say, um, 70% and 90% loan to value. Um, if you can, if you go the SBA route, then you're looking at the 90. If you do the traditional financing, um, commercial financing with a bank, you're looking at like 70 to 80. And will an SBA loan do the construction draws too, or is that a separate loan that you have to go get? Yeah, you do. You can build that in as well. Um, SBA loans actually, so so typically you're looking at some type of project contingency that's built into that, um, which is pretty normal, uh, especially over the last couple of years. The the uh, the the pricing for some of these things has gotten a little crazy uh, it is in terms of construction right i mean if you looked at lumber a few years ago i mean it was just kind of all over the place that largely has stabilized uh, but as a result of that uh, unfortunately I, kind of my joke so working in the defense industrial base was moving at the speed of government uh, you know it takes the government a while to react to things uh, but they have since reacted so uh, they'll build in a kind of a project contingency, but you can finance those as well. And then really how that works um, is really, so you, you submit your budget, right? And then um, as you move along, uh, and typically the general contractor will handle this, which is what our, our um, investor partner that is a GC will do. Um, so he'll handle the, the project. And then when you get to a certain point, you'll do a draw on that loan. Um, and then banks have their own requirements for how you get paid on that. So typically they'll go, they do an inspection. Um, you know, they want to look at the scope and, hey, did you do what you said you were going to do? They take pictures, all that kind of stuff. And then they pay out the um, they pay out the construction draw. And then that just increases the value of your loan. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the, the easier way to get it done. So you don't have, you know, an extra million dollars of capital to get the construction piece done too. Got it. Um, in terms of taxes, are you all doing cost seg bonus depreciation and pulling that forward? Like, what do you do from a depreciation standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we have completed a cost segregation study on the first one. Um, kind of the tricky piece is you got to do it after it's, or, or it's better to do it after it's completely renovated when you put all the money into it, right? It's pretty easy to be able to just kind of send the entire renovation budget and have them walk through with that. Um, and so we're hoping to get the second cost seg done by the end of this year on BNB number two. Um, but yeah, we're, we're definitely doing that and, and kind of, you know, I look at this as probably like a five to seven hold year hold period. Um, the reality is we, we, you know, if, if you're a vivid vision guy, um, there's a term BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, and so the Trevi collections BHAG is to own a thousand keys within 10 years. And so we, we own 18 now, and the one that we've got um, in process is another 16 that we can get 20 keys out of it. So 
the reality is if we're going to hit that goal in years like seven through 10, we're going to have to be doing a 1031 into bigger assets, right? So, you know, you're moving from the 10, 20, 30 keys up into the like 75. Um, and, and we have looked at like, well, how big do you really go? Like at what point is it not boutique anymore? Right. Um, and I, I think there's, you know, if you, if you look on the internet, there's definitely, definitely different, um, different definitions of that. Um, I think ours right now is probably no bigger than like 70, 75. And even that's more of like a more full service hotel. Um, as you go to these bigger cities, um, you know, so we're looking at like Nashville, Miami, right? So as you go to these bigger cities, it's, it's a lot harder to find a 15 key uh, little boutique B&B. Um, so, you know, that's kind of, I think, where we would wind up getting into larger assets. But that's really how I look at it as kind of five to seven year hold. And then be between years seven and 10 um, for true V collection, we're doing 1031s into much larger assets. Got it. I'm assuming that the larger assets value themselves based off of a multiple of EBITDA or some sort of cap cap rate. How do you value a seven key grandma's house Airbnb? Like what is, is, yep. is there standards? Do you run it based off of the P&L? Like how, how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's just like any other commercial um, commercial building, right? I mean, it's based on the, the money that it brings in. Uh, and that was one thing that was really interesting with short-term rentals having been in that long enough is um, you, you hit these just normal single-family homes, um, and they really are commercial assets, right? So it's kind of that, like, mindset shift with banks of getting away from, like, stop valuing it like, you know, someone's living there, like, no one would ever pay this, but you're totally going to pay it for the money that it's bringing in mm-hmm. um, and kind of changing that mentality. It's a little bit different with this just because it is it's it's a much more, um, I think, defined commercial asset. There's there's less ambiguity there. Uh, but, yeah, it's totally um, based on um, based on whatever that net is and that, you know, that's how you increase the value. Right. So in theory, with what we're doing, even if we lose a few points of occupancy, if we're effectively you know, going up 80 to 100% on the average daily rate, then in theory, you're you're almost doubling the value of the asset over time. So, um, you know, that's really kind of the, the plan here is to do our value add and continually trade into bigger assets. Yeah, so smaller hotels is essentially how they would value it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You're not going to buy like a bigger house and then trying to turn it into no. this. You're already buying something existing, got it. Yeah, so, I mean, we and it's funny you say that because we actually in some of these older cities like Savannah, Georgia, for instance, we've offered on, and we have looked at things like just an old apartment building. Uh, there's just you know there's different there's different risk associated with that. So I'm not saying we would never do that. I think I think we would certainly would give it a shot, um, but there's different risk associated with it because you've got to get it approved right, and you know every. Uh, if, if the whole moving at the speed of government thing is a, a thing at the federal level, it's even much worse at the local level. So, you know, there's just different regulations everywhere. The thing that I like about this asset class, uh, one of the many things is that you're really on the right side of the hotel lobby now, right? And so, so when you look at short-term rentals and some of the things, the challenges that I've had to face over the last 10 years with STRs, that kind of goes out the window because now you're really on the hotel lobby side. Um, you know, you, you may be the tiny fish, uh, but there's nothing wrong with that because there's somebody else fighting your battles too. So, um, you know, the rules and regulations are very different, but if you're going through a conversion, um, there's a risk associated with like, well, well, if we are valuing it this way, but then it doesn't get approved as we go through the process, um, you know, you're, you wind up really sitting on a, a bad asset. 
Yeah, which I would argue, um, to your point around being on the hotel side of the lobby, is probably a better position to be in uh, because you do have all of those big money Hyatt's, Hilton's, Marriott's of the world throwing money at, like, get out of the short-term space. And unless you're in a Gatlinburg, a Pigeon Forge, a Branson, Missouri, kind of places like that, then you run the risk of being voted out of uh, being able to totally. essentially legally operate, which is what we see, I think, is going to happen in Nashville eventually again. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. And it's really like in, in terms of valuing, too, like usually the way that you define it is per key. So, you know, if you look at the uh, kind of the total all-in costs, including renovations, we're about half a million per key in Charleston, um, where the, the amount up in Hendersonville is more like 175000 That's all-in, even with renovation costs. So, you know, it varies very widely from market to market. It just depends on what you're looking at. Yep, yep. Well, Josh, fantastic conversation. I want to switch us to our last round. We're rebranding this, the four toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Oof, man, I read so much. Uh, I think I've read like 39 books this year. Uh, I actually put put a, a, a link on my website. I started calling it the Entrepreneur's NBA. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, and uh, and yeah, so I, I, uh, I'm kind of a dork. I'll keep a list and then I assign a star rating um, I would say the best one that I've read so far this year, um, I, I, I hate to pick one, so I'll, ne- I'll narrow it down to two if that's okay, but um, 10X is easier than 2X, um, and these are both kind of mind sh- mindset shift books, um, and they, the second one is Buy Back Your Time, um, and both of them are really about um, you know how do you value your time and kind of thinking bigger and saying no more to the things that are just complete time sucks in life. Um, and I think the, the more success that you have, the more people you have asking questions of how you have it. Um, and so I, I tend to be pretty stingy with my time now. Um, and, and it really, both of those uh, books is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, you know, great workbooks that come along with them and, and ecosystems around them. Um, and, and that's this year, if I had to uh, say all time, probably um, the EOS uh, Traction by Gary Wickman. Um, we implemented EOS probably about 18 months ago, 20 months ago. Um, close to when I quit corporate America. Um, and that's like one of the single biggest things I can point to um, for our exponential growth the last few years. 10X is easier than 2X is the second time that's recommended in the past two shows, actually. So nice. uh, I don't know when we'll release these, but it's funny you said that because I literally heard that just uh, last show. Nice. Our second one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? God, there's so much. I uh, My background's awful, like really, really bad. Uh, father died in prison, like all types of abuse, all that kind of stuff. So um, I always really struggled with just knowing what to do, how to do things. Um, and, and so I really was lucky enough to find a, a mentor, um, really kind of started out in corporate America at age 20, and now he's like a dad to me. Um, I think, again, now the benefit of 22 years of knowing somebody uh, with hindsight, I, I think most of what comes out of his mouth has been <laughs> has been uh, monumental to me. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing, yet we kind of touched on it a little bit before, uh, is really just changing your definition of failure. And I, I look at the things that I have failed at in life, and it's really just because I gave up too soon um, or I didn't have the right mindset around it. Um, and, and I think I've really in the last year just just truly realized how much I've 
stood in my own way. Um, and we, we really are our own worst critic, of course. Um, you know, I think especially the older you get and the more patient with yourself you get, um, you kind of realize that. But um, and just, just, I wish I, I, I look back at some of the things that, you know, even as like a teenager that I failed at, I'm like, well, it's just cause I did, I didn't reach far enough. Right. Um, and, and that's just part of life. Like, you know, there's nobody, nobody in school goes, oh, oh, well you got an F, but you tried hard, you know? So like, that's just not how it works. Right. That's, that's very counterintuitive to how the education system works, but that's not how life works. Um, and so that's really my biggest thing. Um, and, and I mean, a number of entrepreneurs have kind of told me to lean into that. Um, it really just becomes a part of your process. Um, and it changes how you look at the, the, the process of failure and just being another step to learn as opposed to, um, an end result, if you will. Amen. Amen. Our third one is what are you most proud of in your life? Ooh, um, man, I think that's an interesting one, man. Um, it's interesting with, so this guy that's, that's like my dad, um, you know, kind of getting sentimental, having him, uh, I can see now, so he, he's 67, um, I'm, I'm 42, um, and I can kind of, he's been there for a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, he really met me when I was like still trying to, uh, just unpack a lot of, you know, I did embrace the therapeutic process for almost 20 years. And so he, I mean, he really, uh, made it through a lot of stuff with me. And so, uh, I very much value every second that I get with him at this point in life. Um, and I think every time I get together with him now, he just tells me how proud of me he is. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things I value most in life because this is like the most genuine guy you could ever meet in your life. Um, and I, I have overcome so much to kind of get to this point that, um, it just means the world to me that a guy who's made it through so much crap with me, um, has that opinion of me now, because I feel like in some way that uh, he didn't waste his time, all those times that he stuck with me when I did really stupid stuff. Um, I'm also really proud of the fact that I finally got married last year, uh, you know, despite the, the crappy background and probably uh, embracing the bachelor life a little bit longer uh, than, I, than I otherwise would have. Uh, but that's been a really uh, neat and interesting process too. Um, between my wife and uh, the guy that's like my dad now. Those are the two things that I'm most proud of. Yeah, when you're talking about your mentor, all I got to say on that is I am not crying, you are crying. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised I did it. I think I probably told the story enough times to not cry on it. Um, yeah. So I, one more thing on him. I like, he listens to every one of these. I've probably done 20 podcasts this year, right? And like he, he, him and his wife, you know, they're like my mom and dad now, and, and they listen to every single one of them. And every time I hang out with them, last time I, I hung out, they're actually in South Africa now on a safari. Um, but last time I hung out with them, we went kind of like shooting, you know, just hanging out for an hour or two. Um, he's, he he kind of pulls me aside. He's like, you know, you don't have to do that, right? Like You don't, you don't have to say those things. Um, and I, like, I don't even think about it like that, right? Like yeah. I'm just so, I'm so proud of this guy and, and just like who he, I feel like I, I have a better idea, some definition of what it's like to be a man, um, you know, and be human, 
um, and just, you know, how to treat other people and those types of things and just really basic stuff that I just never learned um, as a result of this guy. So uh, if I can, you know, mention him uh, as being a massive contributor to my success, I'm going to take that opportunity every chance I get. That's awesome. Well, our fourth and final one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Man, that is, again, being a a dork that reads constantly. Um, Dead or alive. I think probably, I've always just been a a big Warren Buffett guy. I think a lot of the, especially now that I look at, you know, calling myself an information arbitrager, right, and looking at some of the things he was able to do over the years, it would almost be interesting to uh, sit down and with him when he was like 30 years old, right? I mean, his uh, kind of uh, saying when he was in his 20s is, if I'm not a millionaire by 30, I'm going to jump off the tall, tallest building in Omaha, uh, which admittedly probably isn't very tall, but it's probably tall enough to kill you. <laughs> it's uh, only enough, well, only en- tall enough to hurt you. Yeah, right. <laughs> Two and so, a half stories. You know, I think that would have been yeah, exactly. exactly. Just, just tall enough to break your legs, not, not kill you. Yeah. But uh, I think that would have been interesting. I mean, I, I did, uh, I did the, the token, you know, buy a Berkshire Hathaway share and go to the annual shareholder meeting a few years ago uh, to kind of pay homage uh, before, before that opportunity was gone. Uh, but I, I always thought it would be uh, cool to kind of uh, hang out with him for a little bit. It's just very interesting to me, the, uh, the company he keeps, right? Because it's just so... When you look across pop culture and and sports, you know athletics, and I mean it's politics. I mean it's all over the place. This guy is just so well known um, and has such an interesting story. Uh, and really, if anything, has been more successful in the latter half of his life, uh, just due to the magic of com- compound interest, um, than than he was in the first half. So uh, yeah, I think I always say that if uh, Warren Buffett would have stopped in his thirties, you would have never heard his name. Absolutely. I, yeah. And even probably 40s and 50s, quite frankly. But yeah, I mean, it's it's so crazy. Uh, but uh, yeah, probably him or like Bezos, you know, even Elon Musk, like both of those guys, like the, the capacity to take risk to really do something big and great and change the world. Um, you know, when I look at the types of things, I mean, Amazon is so ubiquitous. I mean, they broke the U.S. Postal Service, you know. <laughs> Um, and, and between that and like Elon Musk trying to really, you know, change cars to being electric across the entire world and, uh, kind of impact society in that way. I mean, it's, it's the risks that these guys have taken. Um, I think anything that I've done to take risk has paled in comparison to any of those three guys. I love to spend time with any of them. Yeah. Well, Josh, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about you or what you got going on, where is the best place we could point them? Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm super accessible. Um, I am picky with how I spend my time, like I said, but I actually do have a Calendly link on my website at joshhatter.com. Um, and so, you know, I, I have uh, had some people randomly reach out. I love kind of having that conversation. Uh, the reality is that most people don't take you up on that opportunity. Uh, and so, you know, I love having those com- some of those conversations and uh, hearing kind of what people are going through and how I might be able to help. Um, I, you know, feel very fortunate to have had a lot of those conversations with people that have helped me along the way in my life. And I'm happy to be that for somebody else. Perfect. We will leave those in the show notes. And then Josh, thanks for coming on the show. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. 
Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.